every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars. Unforgettable. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome again. It is the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Repco. It's a classic car episode. Will Dale and I are going to talk about an amazing car that really does get Holden fans frothing and non-Holden fans fuming. This is a car, the mighty yellow Monaro 427C that conquered the mountain in 2002. The Holden Monaro is set to put Australia on the international stage in the ultimate showdown of the world's fastest road cars. The first ever 24-hour endurance race at Mount Panorama. Holden on the outside, Ferrari on the inside, and away they go. Very few expected to be looking at the Monaro at this time of the day on Sunday. And there it is, showing the way, out in number one spot. Look at these guys, been up all night with this car, nursed this Monaro home, they've had to do panel beating work in the middle of the night, they've had to change a fuel tank. There are going to be a lot of people, be them spectators, teams or media, shaking their heads saying, I never thought it would last. And to win this race, first time out, this will be a fantastic achievement. And there are many other manufacturers that have tried to do the same and failed, and they'll be very jealous of what Holden has achieved this weekend. The Just Cars Insurance, Holden Monaro, 7 litre, 427, Kermigage Monaro, Gasses it onto the main straight for the last time. Takes the chequered flag in the first ever 24-hour endurance race at Mount Panorama. Well, that brings back a couple of memories. The scary part is it is nearly 20 years ago that the Just Car Insurance Holder Monaro was rolled out and won the inaugural Bathurst 24-hour race. Will Dale is with me today as we take a look back at this mighty Monaro that certainly does get the emotions boiling depending on which side of the fence you're on (laughs) why does it do this why is this car so controversial why does it spin up so much engagement when we run a photo of it on socials when the topic gets mentioned why do you think people jump up either to defend it or attack it well the key thing is it's just such an awesome looking and awesome sounding and awesome performing car but also it is all of those things because it raced against cars that it, it was built to race against cars it wasn't built to the same rule set as those cars. And I think that's the controversial bit. And I think the thing that people forget is that, so Nations Cup, which was the category that uh, Ross Palmer and Pro Car came up with, that in essence was a GT category, Mm. but they wanted to fit the Nations Cup formula. So it was kind of, uh, you had Germany covered with Porsche, clearly. Yes. Uh, the Italians the Italians were more than covered with Ferrari and Lamborghini. Mm-hmm. Uh, the US with Dodge and the Viper. Japan uh, with a Honda NSX. And the Nissan GTR, which we never saw one to the full sort of spec to, to be a front-running car. Uh, but then it was a case of, well, what do you race for Australia? How do you get an Aussie car 
in a Nations Cup. And, of course, the Monaro, which had been reborn uh, as a road car around that time in the early 2000s, off the back of it being a concept car at the Sydney Motor Show, and I think it was 1998 Correct, off the yeah. top of my head. So they were already making the Monaro road car. It was already a thing. 5.7 litres was as high as it went. Of course, the race car went to a 7-litre uh, engine that borrowed parts from the GM catalogue uh, that were in the same vein of the Corvette Le Mans uh, race cars that were heading up and down the Mulsanne straight. Uh, well, heading down the Mulsanne. You don't go up the Mulsanne. That means you're going the wrong way, which is probably yes, yeah. uh, not the way to go. 62 other days of the year, yes, but no. That's not right. That, yeah, that yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the concept was to get an Aussie car into Nations Cup. So it had to be competitive with these cars because the stock standard CV8 Monaro was going to be a class car. There was no way that that could be a, an outright contending car. So Ross Palmer, Pro Car, everyone involved basically made the rules so as this car could be created to represent Australia. My, The thing that a lot of people get the irrits about, it's not a GT car. You know what? You're right. It was never a GT car. It was a Nations Cup car. Nations Cup was a unique hybrid formula that was created in Australia for Australia, but it had GT as its basis of all those other cars, the, the Lamborghini Diablo, the Porsches, the various iterations of uh, the Ferraris that were running, all the other weird and wacky stuff that we had over the, the course of, of time as well. It wasn't a GT category. That's mm. that, Boil it all down, there, were, there was a rule book. These guys built a car to the rules. Yes, the rules were framed around the car and, and vice versa, the thing is, if you take the Bathurst 24-hour wins out of the equation, the car was not a Nations Cup dominator. Didn't win the championship. Didn't win more races than Paul Stokel in the couple of years that it ran. It, I think people let the the course of history cloud their judgment on that car and how dominant it, it was because it, it wasn't in Nations Cup on the whole. No, but it's like, it's like the Bathurst 1000. You win the Bathurst 1000, sort of overshadows whatever you did in the championship. And in this case, this that car, well, the car, the Holden Monaro won two Bathurst 24 hours, the only Bathurst 24 hours that happened. So, um, and that's what everyone remembers. And it did so very comfortably. Good point. Of. Well, they, there was no, neither of those two races were without problem for the winning. Of course, the yellow car with Nathan Pretty, Steve Richards, Garth Tander, Cam McConville won the first year. Then they were runners-up the next year when the red car, the second car that had been created, which is which had actually been paid for by Ross Palmer for Peter Brock to race, of course, Brock, Greg Murphy, Todd Kelly, Jason Bright were the pilots in the second year that, uh, that took the win. But the great irony, Will, is this car wasn't created for the Bathurst 24-hour race. The Monaro mm. uh, was created for Nations Cup. The 24-hour didn't exist when this car was conceived by John Stevenson at Holden Motorsport, it came along later along, which forced them to hurry the debut of that car for November 2002. Which you think about what else they were running the Monaro in, in motorsport to promote the car as a performance icon, like a halo performance car within the Holden range. There were only a limited number of things that they could do with it. You, it was being used in all the Targa rallies, Targa Tasmania, various campaigns with Peter Brock, Stephen Richards driving the cars. But in terms of a higher performance, you couldn't go race the thing in super, in V8 supercars because well, it wasn't a four-door. They already had the Commodore. So this was so Nations Cup was a pretty logical place for them to go develop a very high-performance version of the Monaro to use it as a bit of a selling point. 
but you're right. The fact that um, the fact that a Halo endurance race was then tacked onto the schedule certainly didn't hurt. It didn't, and I remember that the 24-hour race was announced from my memory at the Adelaide 500 that year. There was a press conference with Ross Palmer and uh, the mayor of Bathurst at the time, and uh, I remember writing a story in Motorsport News a bit secondhand that Tony Cochran was upset at uh, that event being announced at a supercars marquee event. Uh, we might have got that. I, it was one of those ones where I don't think he would have been that thrilled. I don't think he was as wound up as maybe we all thought that he might be. But I'm, I'm reckoning he was a little bit more worked up come later in the year at the 1000. Do you remember that they uh, rolled out the Monaro on the Saturday mm. afternoon in the rain for some Holden? Holden had some allocated track time at the Bathurst 1000 on the Saturday afternoon, and they rolled out the Monaro um, plain yellow, I think number 34 on the side, Tander at the wheel, and they ran around on slicks in the wet weather. Ugh. And I, I don't think it'd be like the modern equivalent. I'm trying to think of a, of a comparison, but the of Hyundai pulling out a, suit, a TCR car on the something, Saturday afternoon at the uh, 1000. I, I was going to say something like a new, a new Trans Am car rolling out, yeah. um, being wheeled out by a team that was also racing in supercars on the Saturday afternoon at Bathurst. It's it just commercially, it just there's no way yeah. they let it happen uh, these days. They managed be allowed to, to into get the it. track. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> they managed to get that one um, through at the time. And remember, too, that Gary Rogers Motorsport, who took on this project, who built the cars and ran the cars, uh, they weren't first choice. They were not first um, call for Holden for this project. It went to Clayton, to the Holden Racing Team and TWR Australia. They were f- In 2002, they ran five V8 supercars, two HRT, a Young Lions and two Kmart. Hmm. So uh, there was just not the bandwidth for them to deal with it. So I think Perkins Engineering may have been uh, discussed at some point they in the were. process. And uh, that's something, because I didn't know about any of this background until we started working on the Perkins Engineer, Engineering Car History book. And we found out that the Monaro was part of a deal that involved the production of supercars body shells for on Beholden Motorsports' behalf, which like for so long had been something that was orchestrated by Holden, putting special body, body shells together off the line didn't really have the capacity to do that or store those body shells anymore. So they subcontracted it to initially Gibson Motorsport. And of course, Gibson Motorsport became a Ford team and well, they couldn't keep doing (laughs) that. So when they went looking for a new partner to do that, part of that was one of the key parts of the deal. The Monaro program was another. And also the, um, the super Ute, the V8 Thunder Ute was the other leg of that program. And is. As we all know, GRM ended up with a deal and did all three. Yeah, they, they were busy. Of course, they were running their own supercar program at the time. 2002 was Garth Tanner and Jason Barguana. Bugs was on his way out at the end of the year. So the Monaro lineup for that first 24-hour race was Tanner, Nathan Pretty, and, who was you know well ensconced by that stage in the Holder Motorsport family, and Steve Richards, who by that stage was driving for Larry Perkins' team. But um, given the way Holden used to do things, they had this ability to be able to create a Holden team. Like they, they had the Christmas party every year. They had Holden events. They did things as an overall organisation, whereas Ford didn't do that. So the ability mm. for Steve Richards, who was familiar to GRM, he'd raced there in supercars and super touring and Oscar previously. So they knew him. He knew them. But at the very last minute, they thought, hmm, 24-hour race, three drivers, you can have four. Jeez, it'd be easier with four. 
McConville, you're in. Come on. <laughs> so if, if you look, you might some of our listeners might have these posters at home. Uh, you might find them on eBay as well. The official Holden Monaro 24-hour Bathurst poster from 2002. Have a look closely at Cameron <laughs> McConville in that poster. That is Stephen Richards with Cameron McConville's head placed on him <laughs> because it was they'd already done the photo shoot. It was all very late last minute. I think it was a week or so out from the race that Cam got the nod. He didn't even drive the car uh, until first practice at Bathurst. He, he didn't drive at the uh, the Winton test that they did. So late was the deal for, for him to drive. And the great irony was that, um, uh, you know, they kind of probably could have won it with three anyway, but it just meant that four guys became part of the history rather than three. Yeah, exactly. I remember throughout the lead-up to this program as well, it was the build of, the build of it was covered by... Australian Muscle Car Magazine. I remember every issue that came out had all these wonderful like photos taken a GRM of the car being designed and put together. And they really, they really did a good job of hyping up that car before it had even taken to the racetrack. Yeah, good PR. And that's that was Tim Pemberton Plastic, who who I worked for um, some years afterwards. Uh, they were always great with doing that sort of stuff, and the media was was lapping it up. It gave the race attention. It gave mm. people a reason to care about that race. If it was full of just Porsches and Ferraris and stuff like that, it was nice. It was unique and interesting. But well, you look at lo- how long it's taken the Bathurst 12-hour to build yeah. to where yeah. it was before the start of COVID. It took oh, a long totally. time for that race to find its feet and to find its audience and to really build into a big event. Oh, totally. But that, that was the smart card by pro car in mm. that if you're going to have this category with these cars and it was going to be interesting and exciting you needed buy-in from the local audience and how would you get buy-in you bang a holding in the field and you make it so it's competitive in terms of the hardware that it's that it's running i mean seven liter 427 engine you couldn't get a seven liter in, in a monaro you were going to be able to remember they were going to mm, build you really it. could a HRT 427 Monaro that was killed in the end through a, through cost. Uh, a sequential Hollinger gearbox. Remember that sequential gearboxes were still, uh, what, six years away from V8 supercars. 2008 was when they came into play there. Uh, so it was all about creating a car that could run for 24 hours because they had to respec it because it was a sprint car. So they mm. had to go back and change a few things over the journey to suddenly make it a 24-hour car, but we talked about before that uh, seven-liter engine was based on the LS1 Gen 3. That was the the all-aluminium six-bolt main cylinder block and heads used in the Corvette Le Mans cars of, of the period that were unbelievably successful. So they had the ability to dip into the GM parts catalog and see <laughs> what they could get to to make the thing right. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars unforgettable. I've never heard an exact horsepower figure, and I guess we'd have to speak to Jeff Marshall, who still works at GRM, uh, who's looked after engines there for a long time. Uh, probably good for about 550-ish, I, I reckon. It certainly didn't have the power of the V8 supercars of the era, but the torque is what really uh, made its mark. It had Which a is longer... what you need in an endurance yeah, race when you're passing exactly. slower cars. You need that punch out of the slower corners. Yeah, and, and no stress. No stress. Yes. Just ch- brr, up and down the hill. Um, you know, two-litre bigger engine always helps. I went back through the files, and I think that for that first 24-hour, and I think for the second, 
they had a rev limit set by Procar of 5,700 RPM. Uh, and I vividly recall standing at the top of the mountain for that first year's race at about 1, 1.30 a.m. in the morning with Mark Lynn Denning, who is now the editor of Racer.com. He was with us at uh, Motorsport News in Australia before he um, moved to the States. And I stood with him at the top of the hill at Reed Park, and then we walked our way around, and I'm pretty sure it was Richo at the wheel at the time. He got the short straw for that uh, <laughs> graveyard-type late-night shift. And the thing was just, like, it was pulling no revs across the top. He just hooked it in a gear, and you didn't hear it change gear. It just, <laughs> just charged its way around, weaved its way in and out of the slow cars. It sounded the most unstressed engine that you've ever heard in your life. And it didn't all go right for that Monaro in the first 24-hour race because they spent more time chasing the Surtec Porsche to make up the ground that they'd lost with their own um, problem earlier on. They actually didn't lead the, the bulk. They didn't dominate it. They didn't lead it from start to finish or anything like that. They did have teething trouble, uh, troubles with this car over the journey in testing and also in the race. Which I didn't really, again, um, I was in year 12 when, this car came out not to um stop it stop it it's so i didn't so as much as i followed like the build progress in australian muscle car that's really all all i had to learn about so i didn't realize until relatively recently the drums that they had in testing with the rear suspension and it was they made what a couple of minor changes after that and then the problem recurred during practice at Bathurst. Yeah, so they had a the difference with the Bonaro Nations Cup car to the V8 supercars had an independent rear end, which a, a supercar at the time didn't have. So mm. they'd had a few problems. So they, they did a shakedown at Calder with Tanda driving, and then they did a test at Winton. And I think it was about 500, 600 Ks worth of running. They had problems um, with the IRS rear end in the lead up from Winton. They made some changes where they thought they were on top of it. They had some more dramas in Friday practice at Bathurst, and then they sorted it in the end, and the car was was fine from that perspective in the race. But the thing that lost them the time was it had um, the scavenger pumps in the fuel tank failed. So that lost them, I think it was 13 laps, about five hours into the race. So plenty of time left to earn it back and to, to take up the fight and chase. But... I think they thought they could do 35-odd laps, 36, maybe more on a tank. But because this fuel scavenge pump uh, issue occurred, they, from my memory, I think they thought that the, the fact was that the fuel in the tank was getting down too far, things were overheating, so they didn't let it run down that far later on in the, the race. They kept pitting and refueling every 30, 31 laps, and the, the problem didn't happen again. So, mm. uh, But that forced them to chase the Surtec Porsche, which was being driven by David Brabham, Alan Grice, Darren Palmer, the son of Procar boss Ross Palmer, and a man who is probably uh, remembered in Bathurst history for being the slowest driver in a Porsche <laughs> around the mountain, uh, Manfred Urash, who was the, the money man in that whole um, car that weekend. From my memory, Urash was like in his mid-late 60s, something along those lines. He was doing... And look, I, a, I haven't looked up the A gentleman driver's pace. He was a gentle gentleman. He was doing <laughs> two minute 40, two minute 48, something like that. I'd have to look up the Nats off timing. He was so slow. <laughs> but I think they they he was the guy you put in if there was a long safety car period because you could burn some of his <laughs> driving time as a result. But they were in a really good position. The Surtec team was from the UK. The field size that year, I mean, the second year was stronger, but the first year they had... 36 cars in the race. There was really only about four or five 
um, top-running GT cars, and we lost one of them before the race even started. The PHR Scuderia Prancing Horse Team uh, mm. had a Porsche um, a GT3R, I think that's what they were called at the time, it went in the fence at the top of the hill in practice or qualifying. I think Peter Fitzgerald was at the wheel. So they were forced to wheel out a cup car, which was kind of the spare, which they were allowed to run. Jim Richards as part of the lineup. Uh, so that sort of took one uh, contending car out. Uh, the, the PHR Ferrari that Brad Jones and John Bauer driving took pole, but it was never going to finish the race. Way too brittle. There was nothing in the field that had the the, the sort of preparation and execution that the Holden team could produce in terms of full-time professional team, full-time professional drivers, purpose-built car. Everybody else was compromised, whether it was the, the Manfred Euro situation at Surtec or, or you know, they, they weren't all top-line drivers, someone was paying. That was the scenario that happened in both the years of the 24-hour race. I always put it this way. If there'd been a factory-backed Porsche team, with Mark Lieb and Patrick Long or Alex Davison, those sorts of ilk of guys run by a pick-the-gun Porsche team of the time, they would have given them an RO, a red-hot run for their money. But all of the other cars in each of the years were too brittle or not fast enough or had compromised driver lineups. No one went to the gunfight with the same gun to play with. Forget the car, all the other bits, no one else was even close. And that's it. Like, the it was... The Bathurst 24-hour was such a vastly different type of event in terms of the economics more than anything compared to the sprint races of Nations Cup. And very few teams, well, virtually no teams were really fully equipped to attack that race the same way as the Holden, the Holden squads were. And that, to, realistically, that's probably part of what causes the mixed reaction that some fans have towards this car and this era because they really like they, they were shooting fish in a barrel, but you can't fault them for having, having the gun in the first place. There was the opportunity. Yeah. And if you, if you had the resources to do it, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Uh, madness if you didn't. And, and like I said before, it was the best PR that the, the race and the series could possibly had. If you took the Monaros out of that race or those races and nation's cup, is a nice category, but it wasn't that much different from the GTPs of previously and, and things mm. like that. It gave it a, an additional leg up. And, of course, Peter Brock coming to race the following year mm. gave it even more of a, of a leg up. Uh, we talked technically about the, the Monaros. I mean, it had AP racing brakes. It had 18 by 13 entry wheels. Um, remember that the supercars at the time went 18 by 11. So they actually had to change the wheel wells of the Monaro to fit that rubber because they wanted to get on the same rubber as the Diablo and the Vipers. So Smart. it was a bit of trying to, to play things out there. So, And another little thing that occurred to me while I was looking at the notes before we did this pod, when that car rolled out, it was plain yellow, like the road car yellow that the, the road car Monaros had been released in. And then it picked up some sponsorship. Do you remember what the sponsor was? It was a car insurance company, wasn't it? Just Car Insurance was the sponsor for uh, the Monaro uh, program. That's the first deal that set up the business of James Henderson, DC, the Dynamic Sports and Entertainment Group. Hendo was later a partner at Tasman Motorsport. He's probably better known outside motor racing. He's the manager of Ricky Ponting, 
of Alistair Clarkson, the up till very recently Hawthorne coach in the AFL. He's looked after Garth Tander, Greg Murphy, Rihanna Crean, Francesca Cumani, if you're a horse racing fan. It's got a very wide reach across the talent of, of sport and broadcasting around the country. And that he, I actually mentioned to him about the Monaro a while ago. He said that's the first deal that set up his business after he left IMG. So very wow. important uh, little situation and positioning um, for, for what he was able to build moving forward uh, going on from there. So that's just one of those little tidbits of history. Uh, do you remember what tyres were on the Monaro brand? Ooh, that's a really good question. I would have seen Bridgestone, but based on the whole supercars thing in that era, but then Bridgestone wouldn't have had an 18 inch tight size. Um, Michelin's? Dunlops. Dunlops. Oh, of course. Dunlops. Yeah. Yeah. Dunlops. So uh, Dunlop had become the control tire supplier to supercars that year. So they were kind of back in the game Mm. after Bridgestone doing it for a while. So Dunlops were the tire of choice on um, the Monaro during its time racing in uh, the 24 hour and Nations Cup. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. The other um, part that's, that's interesting when you look back on it, there's a Repco sticker. On the side of the yellow Monaro. <laughs> so it definitely qualifies as a classic car on our V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco. And the other thing is, over the journey, uh, that car, and it is at the moment, although we're in a, a different lockdown situation, as to, to normal, National Motor Racing Museum up at Mount Panorama is a place that's kind of been the car's second home, the yellow Monaro, over the journey. Of course, GRM is its spiritual home, I guess you would say, and it's spent a lot of time in the workshop on display down there. But when it hasn't kind of been there, it's largely been at Mount Panorama up at the museum, our great mates there. Uh, it's there as we speak, of course, at the moment, though, um, lockdown in New South Wales, Victoria, feels like everywhere else at the moment. But check the Museum's Bathurst website. Keep following the National Motor Racing Museum Facebook page for when restrictions lift, opening times, all of the information that you need to know because it is a simply fantastic place and it's cool that that car has uh, found a second home there. And, of course, next year marks the 20th anniversary of the Monaro's debut win at the 24 hours. So we might have to convince Brad Owen and his team to get a bunch of those Monaro Nations Cup cars together in the same place at the same time, bit of memorabilia. Uh, we'll wheel out the DVDs and have a bit of uh, bit of an exhibition. That sounds good. The hard part will be attaching Cam McConville's head to Stephen Richards' body, I feel. <laughs> we could try. Here, just stand here, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> um, The other thing that I forgot before we started doing this, the other part of the difficult road to victory for that Monaro in that 24-hour race in 02 was, I think it was about 4 a.m. in the morning, Nathan Pretty had contact with a, a slower car in the chase and ended up off the road with a big ding in the door. But he got stranded on a curb and he couldn't get it to go. He was stuck. He was stranded. So the the crew radioed and said, get because it, it was locked in gear. Mm. So sequentially, you you know, you're you're a bit screwed. So he had to get out. He rocked it backwards and forwards, freed it up, got it going, got it back to the pits, and they managed to to stay in the race. Just one of those situations that um, had they not done that, they would have been fried and we might have been talking about um, the what finished second that first year? The Mosler 
wasn't it? Yeah, 20, I think that sounds about right. 29 years behind. Um, <laughs> it, it might have been the car that won the 24-hour race, so we might not be having this chat. And Nathan didn't exactly tell them just how big the dent in the door was, did they? <laughs> did he? No. No, no it was... Um, <laughs> It was pretty large gouge. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. It was pretty solid, but uh, he managed to get it going, and he, he got it back in. And and obviously, in history shows that they they got up and got running and got the win. Remember that the Surtec Porsche uh, had led for so many hours. Then there was um, a crash from memory. I think Alan Grice might have been at the wheel. Uh, and then later on, it let go again when Darren Palmer took off out of the pits up at turn two and ended up in the fence, and they were they were done and dusted and, and out of the race. It led them an arrow to come on home and take the win. Five hundred and thirty-two laps completed Jeez. across the course of the twenty-four uh, hour race, and the field was varied. It was the GT cars at the front, Nations Cup sort of spec stuff, but there was Prodi cars, there was Future Tourers, there was. Super touring BMWs across the two years as well. Uh, there was it was the licorice all sorts race when you look back on it. Lots of familiar names of drivers and teams and cars, but uh, in the thirty six cars in that first year's race, uh, it was a pretty big list of different stuff. There wasn't too many <laughs> double ups in the same types of cars. It was a very broad representation of the pro car universe when it comes yeah. down to it. Yeah, and it wasn't a, it wasn't a round of anything. It wasn't a Nations Cup double points round, or it was a standalone uh, one-off event. So it kind of Procar had got themselves to the stage by that point where they had a Sandown. They had the Sandown five hundred because yes. Supercars had abandoned it to go to Queensland, uh, and they had a Bathurst. So they had the two things that Australian racing fans at the back end of a year really could buy into and understand and build towards through the course of of a series, but. The V8 Utes were getting really strong by that stage. They had GT, well, they had production cars, performance cars, Nations Cup, Formula 3 floating around. They had a good group of categories, and I think we should take a look at it in a, a future episode and do a, a pro-car-flavoured um, episode looking back. We've done a, a Super 2 one. We've done Super Touring that have been really successful and really popular with the listeners. So I, I reckon we'll we'll get around to that. But if you want to keep some of these memories going, I mean, you've got to go to our online shop because bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au, when you look around, and if you like these Monaros, particularly the yellow one, we've got you covered. Peter Hughes with his beautiful prints of the 2002 and 2003 winning cars are in our store. Uh, you can check out the highlights of those races on the DVD that we released last year. It's part of the classic Australian motorsport series. It is in the store. And we've got a special chapter on the Monaros with some previously unpublished photos in our Racing the Lion book. There's a special chapter on those cars. If you go to bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au, or click on the link in the show notes. I'm sure Will will drop them in there when uh, this pod goes live. You can go for a rummage. And if you're a Monaro fan who've, who's loved listening to this episode, watching those cars, there's a couple of keepsakes that you can uh, grab from our online shop to add to your collection. Uh, one guy we talked about, Will, is Nathan Pretty. Of course, the guy who once upon a time was a cab driver in Wodonga in between racing gigs, uh, earned his name on the high banks at the Quarter Park Thunderdome in Oscar racing, became a privateer in supercars in a, an ex-Alf Barbagallo car that uh, is featured in our Perkins Engineering Car History book. 
got it, got it in with the Holden Racing team and in with Clayton and the Young Lions and started doing uh, some endurance driving. And he was the guy who did more racing in the yellow Monaro than any other driver across the course of its uh, two and a bit years of racing competition. And before we sat down to chat on this podcast, I dialed into my phone book, rung up Nathan and asked him what that car was like to drive and a bit more about the Monaro program. Nathan, great to have you with us on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco. Give me your initial memory. What's the first thing that springs to mind when I say yellow Monaro? Grunt. <laughs> <laughs> and, and big tyres. Uh, yeah, look, it was, uh, was a fantastic beast to drive, that's for sure. It was a, an absolute honour, I guess, back in uh, the early 2000s to get the opportunity to have a, a drive of such an iconic car. How did it compare to a, a V8 supercar of the era? It's the common uh, comparison between the two cars, but it, it had a Holden badge on it, and it came from GRM, but that's probably about where the similarities really ended. It did, because it actually handled <laughs> <laughs> A supercar, you really had to you had to wrestle and, and muscle a supercar, you know, and uh, the Monaro was yeah, independent rear end, it had sequential, it had everything as a race drive that you kind of wanted to have if you could in a supercar. Cause, and the big tyres, they it stuck really well. You could basically never oversteer that car. It, it would always have understeer. That was the common trait because those massive rear tyres and that independent rear end were always just pushing the front, unfortunately. So it was always just an understeering car. It was never oversteering. Despite how hard you tried? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It was just it handled so well. I mean, uh, you know, and I guess with once we got the, the parity stuff where it had massive induction restrictors put in place and, and a lower RPM, uh, you know, you were doing a lot of gear changes, that's for sure, because it was, Changing gears at five thousand eight hundred. I mean, it wasn't really making it the horsepower until well and truly after that. So talk- it was a yeah, fantastic thing to drive. One of the things we remember from the twenty-four hour, the first year, that the year that the car won, is the bit that no one saw. You, you were the hero. You saved it in the chase when it was stuck. You needed to rock it backwards and forwards, jump in it. There's not a single frame of vision, or I've, I've never seen a photo of proof. Everybody's told the story. I still haven't seen yeah. proof that you did this. Well, I guess it's uh, the, the time <laughs> when it was. It was it was at some stage between midnight and you know, four o'clock, I think it was. Um, so there was not many people around, including the crowd. <laughs> so we're all in bed and all the rest of it. And um, it was just unfortunate that I got caught up in uh, in that BMW sort of tank flat that uh, she was having coming out of the, the chase there and I was just going to go around the outside and um, as it turned out, she ended up sort of punching me in the door and, and swung me around over. It wasn't in the sand, it was just because before the sand there was all divots and everything in the grass there and because the thing basically hadn't turned off for so long, uh, everything was so hot, it just didn't want to turn back over and uh, with the, you know, even just with the clutching, so I knew I had to get the, get it out of out of gear, but it didn't want to do that either, <laughs> very easily. How was it that you ended up doing the late night shift? Did you lose rock paper scissors, or how did that all work out? Uh, I'm not sure because being one of the the older stalwarts, 
<laughs> um, I didn't think my eyes would have been as good, that's for sure. But um, well, we knew with GT wearing glasses, we didn't want him in the at night too much. <laughs> but uh, as it turned out, look, it was just as it as the cookie crumbled, really, with the the way that each of us had our stints planned out. That you could have done a double, you could have just done a single and come in, and it just. Yeah, that's just the way that it landed, and, and I was in it at that particular time. Because I think McConk did the that really early, like the sunrise thing, which was quite difficult. Is the 2002 24 hour win your standout banner head? Put it on the fridge racing moment from from your whole career. Yeah, look, it is. I mean, I had uh, 2002 was a was a great year for me in that Rick and I just narrowly missed out on a podium with the, the Young Lions car, um, the O2 car as well, you know, too. And it was, you know, unfortunate that we just, you know, we finished fourth. So, um, and then I got the invite to drive in the Monaro, but I'd also been up at Tabatha for the, with HFT, but the Holden Rally team um, that year as well. So I had a fantastic year getting to go up to such an iconic place, Van Bathurst, three times that particular year. And then to, to have that invite, I guess, along with those other guys uh, to drive the Monaro, um, you know, they were all full-time drivers. And I was a bit of a, I was just a part-timer. So um, for, for me to get that opportunity was just, yeah, once in a lifetime. And, and then to come away with the win, well and truly, the, it's my, uh, yeah, my biggest achievement, that's for sure. You carried on. You were the full-timer for the next couple of years with the Nations Cup. What was the worst track that you hated going to with that car? Unfortunately, where that poor car finished its career was uh, was Wakefield. You know, it was just one of those tracks. It, it didn't really suit the car. I mean, I still had reasonable success there, but it just didn't really suit that car being relatively tight and, you know, I couldn't stretch its legs or anything and it was relatively rough and, it just for me, it wasn't uh, a very enjoyable track. Whereas the likes of Winton, I mean, still sort of similar track, relatively tight. That that was basically um, my my home track, being a Wodonga boy, um, and I yeah, I didn't lose a race there in it. That's for sure. It was had two good seasons there and, and won both rounds when it was at Winton. Ah, uh, your memory's good. I was going to see if you remembered that two thousand three and. 2004, a couple of round wins. Uh, you won four races in 03 and six races in uh, the 2004 Nations Cup, but Stokel in the Lamborghini got the win in, in both of those years. But is there a, obviously the 24-hour race, particularly the win, and then the next year with finishing second are the, the obvious races that everyone remembers. What's the one standout race for you that's not the 24-hour from the Monaro? Is it one of those wins in the Nations Cup? Um, yeah, I do. Uh, probably probably one of the Winton rounds um, in that it, it started to, we made a call quite early because for whatever reason, Garth was at the track uh, helping Leanne and he left and he was down the road. This is kind of before, you know, you, you could get on your mobile and look for bomb and the radar and all the rest. It was more just look for the heavens and see whether there was rain coming and, and Garth rang the guys and said there's, uh, there's rain coming so um, I'm going through it now so I'd be prepping the car for the wet weather and, and we did that and I think one of the, the when it rained really heavily we made the right choice early on and um, and I think they ended up winning by 15 seconds or something ridiculous like in the rain. I actually, I, for some reason in, in any category of a race I, I really enjoyed the rain um, 
you know, that tiptoeing around a different throttle uh, response and, and just, I guess, that driving technique in the rain kind of suited me. So I had a lot of success in the rain. Must have been all that taxi driving up Aubrey Wood on the way that maybe helped you with the throttle a, application or something. You've got a good memory too. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> you did everything, mate. Back in the day, you had to, uh, you know, bake bread, for funny crust, board concrete, throw taxis. I mean, there wasn't too many taxi drivers uh, racing cars and, and driving taxis, you know, doing the, the midnight in the taxi. That's probably why I got the, that, uh, the call up to do that but late in, exactly. in the Monaro because <laughs> you used to drop them out that time of night. Uh, as long as no one was sick in the back, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Hey, Nath, we look forward to uh, collaring you at some stage in the near future. We'd love to have a sit down and a, a longer chat with you about your amazing career and some of the great stuff that you've done. But uh, thanks for some of the memories of the Yellow Monaro. Good stuff. No worries, man. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Good to catch up with Nath Pretty there, Will. He's a ripping guy. I love Nath. We will do a podcast with him about his career at some point down the track. But he's the guy who did more racing and more winning in the yellow Monaro than any other driver. He is the driver who I instantly think of when I think of that car. Well, he's the guy that Holden Motorsport entrusted with that car for the entirety of its Nations Cup program, in essence. I mean, he raced that car or when it finally actually started a Nations Cup race at the start of 2003. That was him. He was in that car. Well, he was beaten to it in 2003. He wasn't the first guy to race that car. Nation's Everyone Cup Series forgets. race, I should, yes, I should point yes. out. Yes. Before it had a 427 on the side of it in 2003, it had a 05 on the side of it. Peter Brock drove yes. the car uh, at the non-championship Nations Cup event at the Grand Prix at Albert Park uh, before the red car was complete. It hadn't been uh, fully constructed at that stage. So Brocky was behind the wheel for the run at Albert Park. Nathan jumped in for the series. Uh, he won four races, two rounds, Simmons, Plains and Winton, finished third in the championship that year behind Paul Stokel in the Lambo and John Bow, who I think he drove three different cars that year because he was in a Ferrari, a, a Viper and a Porsche as well to mm. end up um, second in the points and Nathan finished third. I think Brock might have been fourth in the red car, uh, which uh, was – a car that was, you know, it was a sister car built by GRM, funded by Ross Palmer from ProCar, who retained the ownership uh, of that car, even though it was it was run out of, of GRM. And talking to Nathan over the years, I think he really enjoyed that opportunity to be teammates for a year with Brock. I mean, it was it's a pretty cool scenario, particularly at that point of Brock's career where he was finished full-time racing, but this was kind of his full-time return. He'd done some supercar enduros before and after uh, this Monaro program, but it's pretty cool to say that Peter Brock was your your teammate for a year. Pretty cool. Oh, absolutely. And in an environment that wasn't high pressure, high stakes, one mistake and you're out. I think two, the 2003 Nations Cup was, was probably the peak. It was probably as big as it got in terms of the names. Of course, Brock came along. There were two full-time Monaros. There was a Lambo. There was – the other thing, though, Jim Richards was gone because Carrera mm. Cup had started, so he left to go to that. And there was this um, – there was always angst between Nations Cup and Carrera Cup because Carrera Cup were turning up for 2003. Lots of people who'd been running in Porsche Cup cars uh, jumped to Carrera Cup. Some tried to run across both. It was all a bit political and difficult. Mm. But that definitely sat the numbers of the, the Group 2 runners, really, because they were predominantly Porsche drivers who filled up the ranks there. Television coverage was pretty strong. If you remember that it was a package that AVE produced on, by 2003, it was on Channel 7. 
Mm. So there was regular uh, one-hour um, programs for all the different categories, lots of coverage of the 24-hour race. So there was plenty going on that was pretty that was plenty positive at the time. But within a year and a bit, it was all over. Procar had collapsed. Ross Palmer had been told to stop spending all his money on on motorsport at the you know at the detriment of the rest of his business interests. So the Nations Cup category and the, the category sort of splintered and, and limped through 2004 with various assistance to get it there. But before that had happened, we'd had another 24-hour race. But this time we had two Monaros. It was kind of the yellow blokes against the red blokes, <laughs> um, the defending winners against Brock's mob. And there's still people who say that it was set up, that the red car was allowed to win so Brock could win another Bathurst and he's 10th which um, some people say mm-hmm. is a lot of people say isn't yes but the yellow car late in the race was pitted and had a pretty long pit stop to replace a faulty oil pump so they stopped to hook up a replacement while that happened the red car got in the lead and it's a lead that um, they managed to hold to the end but do you remember that last dice in the last 10 odd minutes do you remember actually <laughs> we've got to play the radio from Gary Rogers to Greg Murphy in 05 and Garth Tander in 427. They've gone through 23 hours and 45 or 48 odd minutes of racing. And then this call comes through from the pits to the two drivers. Very, very interesting chat going on. The Gary Rogers Motorsport uh, Radio, David Addison. We don't know what it all means, but uh, there's some link to the seven minutes. Please, when this happens, can you understand the work and energy and effort that all your workers have put into this? I expect a fair go for everybody, but it is vital for both of you to finish. Well, there you are. Clear directions from Gary Rogers. At seven minutes, something is going to happen. And remember, the team said, Gary Rogers, you've got to finish. Murphy with three tenths of a second over Garth Tander. Please give each other a fair go. Thank you. Please give each other a fair go. Sorry, Gary. Say that again. <laughs> seven minutes now, so race for it, but please give each other a fair go. And as I said, respect the work that these people have put into it. Okay, so it's the other way from what I predicted. They've it's got seven go. minutes to go until the end of the race. Now it's the game on. You can just hear the incredulousness <laughs> in Greg Murphy's voice. You, you, you know when you hear something and you're not sure that you've really heard correctly and you just go back to double clarify, <laughs> you could just about hear his jaw hit the deck in the car in that reply. Yeah, it's not it's it's not what you want to hear as the leader in the last closing minutes of any race. Never mind a twenty four hour race when your teammate is right behind you and you think, oh, we could we could just cruise to the finish here and team formation and you know everyone's happy. I mean, the the, the blokes in the second car may be less happy than us, but you know a win's a win. And um, bless Gary for livening up the tail end of that race. Those <laughs> closing laps were amazing. Oh, the. I will never forget not just the, the the radio call, but there's all these limping, stuffed, steaming shitbox cars <laughs> limping around the track, desperately trying to get to the line to be classified a finisher or to see the checkered flag and to greet their crew. And they're just blokes have stopped at the chase and they're cranking the car over to get it going. They're limping around the track. They're <laughs> Skull in the way. The Porsche around, I believe, was Garth, T- Garth Tander's explanation. Oh, exactly. Um, and these two are at war, weaving in and out, punching out lap times and going at it while everyone else is just trying to survive. It kind of, it kind of summed up how the race was for yeah. uh, the rest of the field in relation to those cars. Do you remember, everyone remembers that they finished one and two. Do mm. you remember who finished third? 
have absolutely no idea who finished third in that race. It was the Porsche GT3 Cup car of Peter Fitzgerald, uh, Scott Schumann, John Schulman, the late John Schulman, and Paul Morris. So the dude has won the 1,000, the 12-hour, the 6-hour, and got kind of closer that anyone remembers to the 24-hour. He got on the podium outright at the 24-hour. <laughs> Well, if the two Monaros had tangled in those closing laps, you would have won. He might have won. (laughs) That would have been a very, very uh, unique part of racing history. Tell you what's unique too, uh, our friends at themotorsporttrader.com, they're keeping your motorsport memories alive. Uh, If you're in a memorabilia of all sorts, panels, suits, race parts, uh, check out their website now. Luke and his team uh, do a great job. It's themotorsporttrader.com. They buy, they sell, they sell via consignment as well, which is important this time of well, I was going to say this time of year, but it's this time of life in terms of COVID and restrictions and uh, getting things to and from places, anything motorsport memorabilia related, and these guys are all over at the motorsporttrader.com. Now, I alluded before, Will, to the yellow Monaro raced on 2004. The call came through that Procar was going to shut down. They managed to keep it all going to the, the remainder of that year. Peter Boylan was important in bringing all that together and helping that um, all roll through. Nathan stayed at the wheel of the yellow car for that year. Um, he won six races. He took round wins at Oran Park and Winton and finished second in the championship to Paul Stokel, who won it again for um, another year. And that was the curtain coming down on Nations Cup. And it, kind, it, it instantly made... Uh, of course, the 24-hour race was canned. It was mm. on the calendar for 2004. But, of course, the, the sheer cost to put that event on was astronomical. Uh, so Procar down, 24-hour down. Instantly, these Monaros, of which by this stage there was a third car that had been built, another red car uh, that the Brocks were running under the Team Brock banner, uh, these cars instantly became orphans. There was nowhere to race these cars mm. in 2005. No, well, and that was... Like they were built for a set of rules that no longer existed, and they they would not have been easy to rebuild to conform to GT or GT three. Not sure if GT three was nah, quite G- around G- by that point, but no, nah, it wasn't. No, but yeah, nah. they wouldn't have been easy to conform to those specs. No which, first, which honestly is a bit of a shame because I remember when this program started, like the thought of one of these cars heading off to Le Mans and um, racing all around around the world would have been really cool, but. That's not the purpose they were built for. No, it was never going to happen. They were never going to fit a rule book anywhere else around the world, unfortunately. But um, And, of course, Australian GT Championship was, well, recreated for 2005. It was a championship that had been around in the 60s and 70s, but it came back um, to, to fill the wake of, of Nations Cup. Uh, the Porsche Drivers' Challenge, which had come out of the old Porsche Cup, uh, was also morphed in there to to make some fields. So we did see the Ferraris, Porsches, Lambos, all that stuff continue to race. But I think all of those competitors and drivers and teams were quite happy uh, not to have to uh, deal with the Monaros anymore, and they kind of became instant museum pieces in mm. the years that follow. Of course, the yellow car has um, been at GRM a lot. We've seen it on display plenty of times over the years. I think it came out as part of Gary Rogers' 70th birthday celebrations up at Queensland Raceway going back a few years now. Uh, and as we mentioned earlier, it spent lots of time at the National Motor Racing Museum. I'd love to see them put it back to the full proper O2 uh, Bathurst 24-hour livery. Mm. Uh, it ran with some different signage later on over the years. That It's kind of been how it's kept in more recent times. Um, 
but those are special cars. There were three of them raced in period. There's been a, a fourth one built in recent times at GRM to the same spec as as the other cars, but it doesn't have the the race history. It's 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 white. It's got a retro '60s style uh, Monaro livery on it. It's been acquired by uh, Adrian Portelli of LMCT Plus. Uh, I'm not sure we'll, if we'll see that one ever uh, auctioned or raffled or um, what's going to happen with it in the future. But the fact remains, it doesn't have the race history of the other three. The two red cars, you know, the 24-hour winning car is a standout across the the Team Brock car, which Peter only raced a couple of times. James actually raced it to win the last ever Nations Cup race at Nation uh, at Malala in mm. uh, in late 2004. But when you say the Nations Cup Monaro, as special as the Brock 05 red car is, the yellow car is the car that stands out above all of them. Absolutely, like it's the first, it's the first one. It made that huge impressions we talked about in winning the inaugural 12 hour it was there for the entire program that's that's the car that you see you think of seeing that car as you said the photos of it at bathurst in 2002 at the 1000 i think it it was wheeled out after the after or maybe yeah after the 24 hour at the final supercars round at sandown in 2002 did a few laps there where garth ran 427 as well in honor of the big on his supercar on his supercar supercar. yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's easily the car you think of when you think of nation's cup monaro yeah without doubt the yellow 427 just car insurance car winner of the 24 hour runner up the following year a race and round winner in nation's cup competition across the the couple of years that it ran and uh It'd have to be a priceless piece of Holden racing history. Uh, I can't see – it's pretty hard to put a price tag on a, a car like that because there's there's only ever one of those yellow cars. It's not like there was two or three of them and one of them won a few races and the other one won a few here. It's it. It is the car. It is the original. It always will be. It's a, a special and cool part of Holden and Australian motorsport history. And I know that there's a lot of people who talk it down, who don't like it, who are upset by it. But the fact remains, there was a rule book. They built a car and they went and did the job. But it never won a championship. It didn't win Nations Cup. It didn't win all the races. But as you said earlier, it won the race that mattered for those cars in that category, that period. And no matter which series you're in, category you run, if you've got a race at Bathurst, it's your Bannerhead event. And they got the job done and they've gone down the history books. Absolutely. I feel like if – because Gary Rogers has retained that car the entire time. I feel like it would take a check with a lot of zeros on it for him to part with it. I feel like that's a very special car. True, but the thing you forget is the Rogers are car dealers from way back. They are car dealers from way back, Will. And this, that's why I said they would. I didn't say they wouldn't sell it. <laughs> it would just take a lot of zeros on the end of the check. Yeah, it'd be a very long check to fit all yeah. those zeros written on it. So uh, a cool look back for us today to have a look at the Holden Monaro. 427C. We've covered off a bunch of stuff. A big thank you to Nathan Pretty for taking the time to to have a chat and share some of his memories and his recollections of that car. Um, And we get a a bunch of questions um, during the course of the weeks in between pods. We'll do another Q&A down the track at some stage soon, but if you've got a classic car that you'd love to have featured in Focus, with a spotlight on it, we can talk more about it, we can go and have a talk to someone who is crucial in its creation or its racing competition or its development, by all means, hit us up, get in touch with us via our v8sleuth.com.au website, jump on the online store, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au, buy some books, buy some prints, buy some DVDs, uh, really get involved in the monaro of our store because there's a fair bit of monaro 
in there, plus a whole pile of other stuff uh, to keep you entertained and getting you through. If you're in lockdown at the moment, oh, DVDs, books, perfect. Pass the time and get you through. We are here for you. That's That should be our new motto. That'd be absolute, <laughs> I reckon, Will. Um, and keep those questions rolling in. Keep the suggestions rolling in. Uh, thanks for the reviews. Keep reviewing the pod wherever you listen to it. Subscribe so you don't miss any of the episodes. And we will be with you again next Wednesday for another edition of the Absolute Podcast, powered by Repco. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.